After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. Cameron Maitland is at a very fancy dinner, so he's unfortunately unavailable. But that's cool, because I have a good friend of mine. I'm so happy to have him here. His name is Alex Jocelyn Hamilton with a hyphen. You'll be able to Google that. We just had to remember whether or not there was a hyphen in his name. He had it, though. We were okay. Alex, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Yes, there's a hyphen in my name. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Now, I especially wanted to have you on the show. One, because I love to talk about movies with you and Mm -hmm. you're awesome. Uh, Two, you've got a new series out for CBC Gem that is just rocking YouTube. It's rocking the Gem app. I've seen it. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It's called Devout and Out, which is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about? What is this show? Well, the the show explores the intersection between um, uh, people of faith who happen to also be uh, queer people. So these are these are queer individuals, LGBTQ identified individuals who, for whatever reason, have not only decided to stay in their uh, faith-based communities, but who are leaders and who are sort of changing the landscape of what that looks like and how that makes sense, how they can reconcile their uh, sexuality, their gender expression, and their faith. They're like uh, they're like little unicorns that sort of exist in spaces, and we're like, how how do you how do you exist in these spaces? That's what the series explores. Well, and especially for me, because my understanding there is a separation of church and state when it comes to your sexuality yeah. and and faith, which a lot of people believe, but there isn't really like no. faith is just faith is just what you believe. Well, that's um, that's sort of the plot twist of the of. The series because that was that was my experience and that was my understanding uh, my relationship with church up until five years ago um, and and then all of that changed when I met my now husband and and I sort of discovered a community of people who were devout and out <laughs> and creating open and safe spaces for queer identified people who also just happen to be religious people too. My understanding of religion beforehand was that there was no room for people like me. There's no room for people like us because because of the institution rules. And if anything, there is tolerance, but there is no love. Exactly. And what I've come to sort of realize for myself is that well, that's really not what the text is about. That's really not what's at the center of the Christian faith, which which I'm a part of. But um, um, there's also a lot of room for diversity, a lot of room for interpretation. Um, and so I've got a very different relationship with this idea of church than I than I had before. I mean, obviously, I married the guy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. Uh, and the first episode is actually about you and your family. And I don't want to go too much into it. But guys, it's so good. It's so good. Um, and the second episode, uh, the second and third episode also deal with people who have beliefs in, and who live lives that you may not know anything about, which yeah. I found fascinating. And yeah. I, I, that's what I want out of my documentaries. Tell yeah. me something I don't know. Exactly. So the first episode follows my husband, Pip, Pip Jocelyn Hamilton. And the the second episode follows Susan Beaver, who is an indigenous uh, lesbian uh, minister in the United Faith, working uh, in uh, Six Nations. And uh, the third episode is about Cormac, who is a trans non-binary youth minister 
uh, working also in the Anglican tradition. Again, these are not stories that we're traditionally hearing. And the fact that this is playing on a, C- uh, on a streaming service for a national broadcaster, yeah. for Canada's national broadcaster, is unbelievably amazing. And the response you guys have been getting has been unbelievably amazing. These are clearly things that people want to connect with right now. We've been we've been getting regular uh, private messages from from people who sort of express this this feeling of, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one. Uh, I'm now seeing other examples of, of people doing this. And thank you for sharing your story because this means so much. One of the reasons why we decided to share our story um, and our family story, there's 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 more layers to our, our family, um, which you can find out all about by watching the episode on CBC Gem, um, was because as my husband and the rest of our family were going through the process of figuring out how to make sense and how to reconcile their sexuality and their faith, because because my husband came from a very conservative religious upbringing where, where that wasn't the case, where that wasn't okay, and had to do a lot of work, left the church, did a lot of wrestling and coming to terms with with who he was and leaning into living authentically and and then and then sort of finding a relationship with his faith and and a faith-based community too um but there was no there was no guidebook there's no sort of road to follow and he was just sort of figuring it out as he went he and our co-parent chris they were married chris is female gender neutral name (laughs) but chris is female they were married before back in the day back when they both were trying to make straight work and after uh their and now our second child was born they realized that some changes needed to be made so that they were not imparting the same sense of shame on onto the kids and and that they weren't doing that to themselves as well anymore and something that i really love about the entire series and your your family story and and all these stories is that um you guys took a very different approach to the series than other shows i have seen talk about serious issues regarding the lgbtq community because you do show the trials and tribulations and the issues that people went through and the and the quite frankly horror stories of some of the things people had to endure but you also show the way out Mm. and you show that you show the hope and you show the joy that is now there and i often find in a lot of these stories you miss the middle part of how they got out you miss the middle part of how they found reconciliation how they found joy how they found their family how they found their friends Mm -hmm. um and i think shows like rupaul's drag race are good for like showing the and i'm here now but you definitely miss those middle steps Mm -hmm. of like what it took to get out and i know stories about like a lot of the horror stories can actually uh, that people endure especially just as they're starting to find their place um can deter people from coming out and deter people from making those steps but your guys's film and show so deliberately uh, makes a clear path of this is how one person did it you can find your way to we have a really a wonderfully unique very literal modern family that we're really proud of and we're constantly sort of focused on doing the hard work of pip and hat chris had to uh, do the hard work of rework and rediscover what their relationship was. You know, they they entered into marriage and realized that's really not the truth of what their relationship is. When people try to make sense of our family, we really shy away from language like, oh, this is my ex or this is my ex-wife, because that's not the truth of the relationship. Um, the relationship is that, you know, we are, we're all life partners, not all of us romantic life partners, but we have chosen to do family together 
because we really believe in being there for each other. We really we really care about each other, and it's not um, a typical family dynamic. It's a little bit more complicated. There are more people involved, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It doesn't necessarily work for everyone, and that's not what we're trying to say. This is just a possibility or at least a way of thinking huh i can reconceive for myself what works for me given my situation the reason why we chose to to do the episode is so that you know other people might be able to for themselves discover what works for them but because our family is so unconventional and the story is so unconventional the struggle in figuring out how to tell the story was was really interesting, was definitely an interesting challenge. And after wrestling with uh, how, how do we structure this? Because we need to get people up to date. We need to catch people up on what's happened. Part of the interesting part of his struggle, of course, is the dramatic nature of, of you know, that 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 dark valley all that all that stuff he's he's gone through and we we decided oh, well we just have to sort of tell it chronologically that's the only real way that we can do that to get allow people to get to know him and get to know us um, and then we take them take the audience on the journey with us but the, the you know you come out the other side of the valley and that's kind of a the great thing about it <laughs> totally and i don't want to get the cliche but it's totally the cliche of you will laugh you will cry you'll be like oh man i'm transformed and that is the entire point <laughs> that's the that's the fun thing about it, it was, that it d- did feel for me in working on it and and as we were sort of discovering okay what what does your life look like pip as as a story there there is a nice balance and a range definitely an emotional range in there too it doesn't sort of it's not vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, no, not the least. But your interest in story, like you were a story editor and a story supervisor on a number of other shows. Um, you worked as a director. You've worked as a, a filmmaker. You've had many hats in the film and television I industry. I just like hats. You just like hats. <laughs> That's because you look good in them. You've got a good shaped head. Oh, thank you very much. No worries. Not everybody can I'm wear them. i my head in <laughs> And it's interesting to me that the movie you picked today, uh, which is very different from Devout and Out, but, very- does, but does have themes of uh, sexuality. Religious themes and sexuality. <laughs> exactly. Maybe um, that's what was going on with me subconsciously when picking the film. Oh, you know you wanted to do this one. Um, and this is one, actually, I hadn't seen before. Um, and as I started to do the research, I'm glad I'd seen other Cronenberg first. If this was your gateway Cronenberg, I don't know how you would yeah. be able to get to his other stuff. Yeah. What movie did you pick? I, I picked Existence. Um, so Cronenberg's uh, 1999 uh, sort of sci-fi uh Obviously, it's Cronenberg, so there's a lot of body stuff going on in there. But I, I for me, the film, uh, I was I was quite young when I watched it. But for me, it was it was sensual and sexual, and it was coming right. You know, it was the the millennium when this was coming out, so we were all sort of fascinated with cyber everything and what's the new frontier going to be like for for gameplay and fantasy and and escapism. Uh, and this film sort of explores that and I, th- I think there is something 
you know there about my sexual awakening there's some there's some queer notes in there too if you look for them which i found fascinating we can talk a little bit about that too oh by which you mean there is like a whole homosexual undercurrent going oh, on with yeah. the Willem Dafoe Jude Law character oh yeah constantly yeah well and just sort of the subversion of of typical gender norms too like yeah. Allegra Geller is the is sort of the powerhouse um and Pykele Jude Law's character is just so timid he's the ingenue you know oh and Which he's I think wide-eyed and oh wide-eyed and, and he's 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 never plugged in you know and then he has his first time it's so great and it is uh less painful than he thought it would be yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, which that's isn't good. always the case for everyone but. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh of all the movies you could have picked why did you pick this one because you hadn't done it yet <laughs> oh, okay totally fair <laughs> no uh i was trying to think what are some really interesting canadian films that that I would like to talk about and that I haven't and that I feel like a sort of pull towards and there's so many but this one just sort of stuck out and I think they're considering what I've been working on lately I love that here also you can find notes about sexuality gender expression there are uh, religious themes in there too and I always love a good reality bending sort of sci-fi trip that's always fun because there's what four alternate realities in this i'm just trying to count one two th- yeah i think there's four or is it just you three? know what i've never actually counted i think because there's potentially four i think there's definitely three definitely potentially three. four yeah, yeah, yeah. okay that makes sense. uh that's your spoiler alert guys yeah. <laughs> is that there is more than one reality you don't need to watch on. the movie now no. becky's just ruined you're it. good <laughs> um i have to say this is not my favorite cronenberg but Fair. i think and, it, and i think what fascinates me is that he's coming out of crash yeah. on this one which is like okay you can kind of see point yeah. a to point b and then he moved on and you're like this is also he hadn't written an original screenplay since videodrome yeah. in 1983 and this is 1999 yeah. so this is his most recent original screenplay and then he didn't write another one until cosmopolis yeah so you know what i think is interesting about this one because i think the way it plays and definitely tonally there's something like there's a very uh like blockbuster-esque hero's journey here that sort of uh in, in its tone and definitely in its orchestration too like it it feels like a grand orchestrated film and it's in its soundscape it is an intimate film it's an intimate film that sort of sort of plays like a blockbuster and i think that might be where it gets a little bit awkward because it doesn't reach blockbuster level. So if you go into it looking for that, you're going to be a little disappointed by the end because it does stay pretty intimate. But I think you're right too in that there's a tonal thing you sort of have to shift into. And I think I texted, so I texted Cam as I was watching this and I was like, is it supposed to look like what elements of this are supposed to look fake? Mm-hmm. Like what is, and then you start to clue in, you're like, oh, that's because it's part of this world. It's meant to look like this. And you know what? Right from the beginning, the dialogue feels very lifted. It feels like theater. And yeah. and and Cronenberg also talks about just from the opening of the film, it is like all the world's a stage, right? Everything is a performance because they're part of this plot twist. You know, they're they're part of this lifted world. And you're not quite sure what's real. And if you watch it, the whole time, Allegra and Pykele are constantly touching textures to because they're testing out, you know, what is the, what do, what does this feel like? How is the accuracy on this texture here? So if they, they're walking into a new space, they're constantly touching things to, you know, get a sense of how it's reading. And I just find that a nice, uh, subtle um, detail. Oh, all of it's subtle. This is meant to be watched 
multiple times mm-hmm. because there's some stuff that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's one scene where Allegra, who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee, I think we talked about that, who's but she's walking through just like watching and listening to things. Yeah. And if unless you knew that this world is fake yeah. um, and that she created it within that reality, yeah. um, you wouldn't know exactly what she's doing. And then when you get to the very end, you're like, oh, okay. And then you have yeah. to go back and watch it again and then you pick up all those little the details. The whole worlds within worlds thing before um, Inception. So then my question is, who is this for? Because like I said, when I... I think I said this before we started rolling was I remember this I was I think I was 17 16 17 in 1999 and this was very much marketed like you said as a blockbuster movie and I remember like the quick cuts and like Sarah Pauly is in it and like Jennifer Jason Lee Jude Law both hot guns made out of bones the gristle gun which is like the grossest name for anything like it was it was fast cuts it was bright lights Callum Keith Rennie's wearing glasses and now he's shooting guns but then you watch it and you're like oh no so slow so so slow so very David Cronenberg yeah. circa 90s yeah. do you think that affected people watching it or do you think people really got on board with the sci-fi aspect of it oh I'm sh- I'm sure people were wide- wildly disappointed because <laughs> that, that is you know false advertising mm. that's not what the film is the, f- the film is is an indie film that feels a little bit bigger than 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 what it is and that's that's nice and I think that's partly to do with the fact that it's world worlds within worlds and it's all about video games that are lifted narratives and very dramatic dialogue too so i think the idea is that we're constantly trying to escape to something more exciting right that's what these characters are doing and that's you know what we do as a society too but for people watching it yeah they they would be disappointed because it doesn't really amount to that at least not in the way that they would expect no it doesn't all of a sudden turn into the fifth element right no. if they had the budget of the fifth element and yeah. like all of a sudden there was flying cars and there was yeah. this and that but it's also i think it, there's a fascinating idea and one thing i didn't hear in any of the commentaries or any of the interviews was how much cronenberg actually played video games like how much awareness he actually had. You know what? that's interesting too i didn't come across that either and that's kind of what i wonder because like they even have a commentary in it where Jude Law asks Jennifer Jason Lee, do you know, what is the point of the game? And she's like, well, you have to play the game to find out the point mm-hmm. of the game. And I'm like, that would infuriate so many people. Yeah. <laughs> and also there's nothing, like there's assassinations in the gristle gun and like there's some things that are exciting, but there's really not that much exciting about the game. There's not much action. Yeah. There's a hint that action's going to come. And we see, you know, at the end with this sort of, you know the the military coming in and explosions and stuff going on on the periphery like there's this idea that there's more going on just outside of our frame of awareness but um but yeah th- there isn't a lot of action that happens it's quite minimal people get shot yeah with gristle guns with gristle guns <laughs> shooting teeth <laughs> which is really gross it is really gross <laughs> that's such a cronenberg touch, oh though. yeah oh yeah but it makes it so much more visceral right because again it's all about the body it's all about you know the organic nature and the corruption of the body or the celebration of the body it's such a you know back and forth there when uh, the chinese restaurant owner gets shot and that you see his face basically half his face is gone so you know, for young me, I'm just a little bit younger than you. So when I watched the film that um, that terrified the 11 year old. <laughs> Understandably. No, totally. I actually feel kind of bad because I was trying to look this up in my copy of Kaelin Battendahl's uh, They Came From Within, which is the Encyclopedia of Canadian Horror. This one is not in it, but we have a bunch of Cronenberg coming up, guys. So I am, uh, I know it's going to be great. So I'm looking on that. But I felt really bad because on the cover of it is the little guys from The, the Brood. 
and Ooh. I left it out on my coffee table because I was looking at it and my partner's little guy who's five was like, what's that? And I was like, we're going to be whisking that away from all the yeah. pictures. You don't need to know about the world of Cronenberg yet. We're going to deal with that later. Oh, gosh. One of the things that fascinated me when I was a little kid because, you know, I, I developed a love for films at a really young age. But I, when we would go into the video rental store back in the day when you did that, I loved going into the horror movie section mm. and watching, like taking a look at the designs of the covers and then, of course, the stills on the back of the VHSs. And I was so horrified but so intrigued. There is so much in terms of design and fantasy that's sort of put in there because like horror explores so many very graphic pieces in terms of effects. I found I found the making of it, I think, fascinating. So seeing images of Freddy Krueger, you know, slashing at people. I remember there's, I don't remember which nightmare movie it is, but there's this image on the back of the VHS where he is eating someone. Like he's, his mouth is just stretched wide. Oh. And a girl's legs. Like I think she's that's Dream Warriors. I is think it that's Dream the third Warriors? One. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that to me was just like, yeah, terrifying <laughs> nightmares for yeah. weeks, but just for some reason so fascinated by it. So I think that's why I've always been been really intrigued by horror and sci-fi because you've got those really like grand stylish choices that could be made. And this is something I think you brought up earlier was about the idea of world building. And that's something Cronenberg yeah. is so good at yeah. is he sets up the world. These are the rules. This is how we're going to play within the rules. And I think this one suffers just a little bit in that because there's so much he has to set up. So there yes. is a bunch of clunky dialogue. He's introducing yes. all new words like the umbicord and the pod yeah. and this is how the pod works. So it's it, it does get just a little bit muddled in like yeah. the world building. So I've got a mixed... Like, I've got mixed feelings about that because part of that, I think, is sort of the the flaw and the struggle of having to just do all of this setup. And it feels like the film is just setting up, setting up, setting up as they go along until the end. And there still could be even more setup, right? Because yeah. you just have questions upon questions. It also feels like a pilot episode of a TV show. It does. Yeah. But at the same time, I felt like, oh, well, this feels really true to to some gameplay experience, right? You're mm. just constantly getting p uh, new pieces of information that just sort of expand your awareness of the world. So so that's where my mixed feeling about that goes is oh, it feels kind of accurate and then and then also does feel like um, a flaw within the, I guess the structure, the storytelling. But I do yeah. also love the way he creates worlds that feel real. Like, it's one of the reasons I love Blade Runner. It's one of the re yeah. reasons I love Alien is that these feel like worlds that are lived in and that exist. And this is something Cronenberg talked about where he's like, I didn't want a future that was all shiny and bright. He, I'm mm. sure he hates Apple. I'm sure he hates <laughs> Apple. Because um, that was the other thing, too, is I'm looking at these pods, which are these organic creatures, which yeah. you're going to find out. And they look like, you know, little vagina-y sort oh, of things. Oh, yeah. It's, it looks um, like something that H.R. Giger had designed, you know. They, it's straight up has a clit on it and yeah. as they're playing it they're like yeah. flicking the clit and you're like great okay you know um, i've always inter interpreted that as flicking the nipple to turn it on really yeah huh. well, well that just explains our we're two different people two different people two different sets of interests yeah very very true <laughs> that's all right um but I, that's also the genius of cronenberg is yeah. like what sexuality are we looking at this amorphous yeah. thing that looks like it was bred out of a well, weird te teleporter well and then like you st you stimulate it and the thing just sort of like worms and writhes and then the on your lap on your lap and the game player sort of 
mildly convulses with it too so it's a very intimate experience obviously. i feel like if this is the way that video games had evolved twitch would be a very different thing oh yeah <laughs> and and yet it's it's really funny because when you think okay what time period would this take place if this is sort of set in the near future from 99 or if it's a parallel reality um and then and pikel pulls out his pink phone and and it looks like something that apple might have designed if if you take a look at it it's just this very simple white blob that turns pink when you answer it you see it for like maybe 30 seconds and then never again in the movie but that's why i also want to talk about the um the world building of it so do you know who carol spear is no i don't oh man okay i just learned about her today which i am very glad uh she is the production designer of this film and she is one of the core group of people who always work with cronenberg on all of his stuff so howard shore always does his music right she always does the production design his uh, sister denise always does the, the wardrobe and the costumes and she is is the one who figures out how to make things work for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he comes to her with like, okay, this needs to be what it looks like. And she's like, well, let's make it a reality. And mm-hmm. she also works for Guillermo del Toro as well. Oh, cool. She did Mimic. She did a bunch of his other stuff. Uh, she did Pacific Rim. Um, right. And so... What I think is so fascinating, because we talk about people like Guillermo del Toro, and we give them all these praise, and David Cronenberg, and like people who have these incredible visuals, but we don't, we forget about the people who make that a reality. Yes, because it's a village. And the beautiful element of Cronenberg is that he's really good at being like, this is what I want it to look like, and then he's good at hiring people who know how to make it look Mm -hmm. like that thing. So he gets exactly what he wants, but that's because he's also been good at hiring people who Mm -hmm. are able to give him exactly what he wants. And so much of that is communication, right? Because you're, when you're talking about trying to bring a fictitious reality into existence you can you know talk anyone's ear off you know i had this dream last night and this is what i want it to look like and you're still we're still limited by language you can't invite someone literally inside your head and have them walk around take a look at it despite you know how that's what's going on in this movie you know but it's also great if that can happen (laughs) but it's also what makes sense to you doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. make sense to other people i had a a director i was working with in um in theater once when i was in university who directed it entirely in sound effects he's like right now you're giving me like and i need a little bit more bow and you're like bow got it sure i can give you a bow i've heard choreographers using that kind of lingo i i haven't heard of directors doing that oh yeah oh i'm sure everybody it's what makes sense to you right you got music in your soul exactly (laughs) you gotta let it come out a little bit of a synesthetic experience there so it's neat because he'll be like okay we need a church so then she builds like a little model of the whole church and she walks him through it i love it because he has this like little cane that he pokes things with within the model which has like this little like skull head on it and i'm like oh this is so great i watched this whole making of documentary existence fx documentary it's on youtube it's totally worth your time it's an hour and it's neat to see how they built everything where everything took place what they were doing but with her i love this idea of people who can make dreams reality Mm -hmm. and who really understand the practical and the nuts and bolts because you can dream as big as you want and you can have good ideas but unless you can translate those no one's going to care yeah of course of course of course and so much of that too is what so many people don't realize is is also how you light a space too and i know very little about lighting that's not my forte but it's especially in my experience working on shadow hunters like you you take a space and you can shoot the shit out of a space it, and it might be a gorgeous space but if you're not lighting that space well you're losing so much the way that 
you use light to create shapes around people and around spaces to me that's really magical too that's 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 a really interesting skill set which i wish i had more of and i love the care and attention that goes into set deck especially in this film to build this world like for Mm -hmm. indie films they don't have a lot of money i didn't look up the budget what what the budget was for this one but i'm sure it was not that much um but when they're in the video gaming store they have all of these little boxes of games and things and some of them you get to see and some of them you don't but there's one little game that's like hit by a car the experience of this there's like a guy flying through the air i love the tongue-in-cheek the tongue-in-cheek nature of that especially um there's another reference earlier on in the film what was it they uh oh right when they're talking about where they're gonna get a port for pikel yes because he has he has to get his port so he can plug in and they said so i guess we're just gonna go up to your average country gas station and sure enough like they they cut to the exterior establisher of the gas station and it has those exact words <laughs> printed on the side of the building well so is the chinese restaurant the chinese yeah. restaurant is just chinese restaurant like yeah. everything's just written out it's great and i think there's there's a there's definitely humor in that like that's just I think a lot of fun. I love that. Well, we also haven't even talked about the cast here. Okay, so mm. we've talked about Jude Law and Jennifer Jason Lee, who are both amazing. Yeah. Did you know that Jennifer Jason Lee was uh, supposed to be doing Eyes Wide Shut at this time? And she oh. had shot a bunch of it, but the, the reshoot, because, you know, Kubrick, um, yeah. conflicted with this one. And she just said, you know what? I'm not coming back to that set. I'm just going to stay here. And they recast her. Wow. So she was not in Eyes Wide Shut because of that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, but then you've got Don McKellar. You've got Ian Holm. You've yeah. got Willem Dafoe. You've got... Uh, what is his name? Bob Silverman. That's who it is. Yeah. Uh, Robert Robert A. Silverman, who's a, a Cronenberg staple, who's like one of right, my favorite right, right. human beings. Yeah. He's just such a weirdo. And uh, Sarah Pauly, right? Like, yeah. but what's interesting is that these are all people. Spoiler alert: who are all playing the game, and they all have their point of view and their goals that they're attempting to achieve. That they don't know what they're supposed to achieve until mm-hmm. they get that inkling of, oh, I think I'm supposed to kill someone or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you have to think about, okay, who are the non-playable characters? What are the objectives? How do they? So there's so much left to the peripheral and left to the imagination and this is where I think the show or the movie fails just slightly is that it becomes so conceptual it stops being fun yeah because you're like okay but I understand that you're trying to make a whole overarching thing about how the creator is God and that because she's the creator this is happening but if these are people who are also playing the game shouldn't I be I be seeing more of them and how they interact and what they do absolutely they do sort of get lost in the uh, in the one of the things that I do find really interesting is is that that concept of artist as God, and then what does that say about uh, the creator of games and where we put our focus and um, what we build religions out of, what we build followings out of. What are the um, stories that are going to matter to yeah, us? Yeah, and that's you know, there's social commentary in there, but but yeah, it does get lost towards the end and and beyond that. So it starts to explore something that's really interesting. And then about halfway through and up until the end, I was left feeling like, okay, but where's this going though? Yeah. What And what is, what is the statement here? And then while the ending is fun, it's still like, okay, cool. Like that's, that's, that's a, that's a fun plot twist, a fun cliffhanger. But what, what are we trying to say beyond, you know, the initial statement? Yeah, and I, I know this was inspired by Salman Rushdie and the Satanic Verses yeah. and having a uh, having a hit put on him by the Ayatollah, yeah. um, which is terrifying. The yeah. idea that you can write something and then have no control whatsoever over yeah. your art, which is at the core of this. And I mean, all great horror movies have that, like, at the core, what is like the big grand sweeping statement we're saying about humanity or we're saying about society. Absolutely. Um, 
it becomes just too much world within world within world that you're like, okay, I can't totally follow. What, yeah. Wait, but if he was the bad guy, shouldn't I have known he was the like? Well, there... and there's also uh, there's that whole thing that okay, worlds within worlds are great. That's a device though. Yeah. And your film can't just be about the spiraling of worlds within worlds. There's got to be something more to that. The film can't be about the device. It's got to be about this statement. And while there's a great thematic topic and great thematic inspiration, where are we going with that? And I think the film does, like you're saying, um, leaves a little bit of something to be explored. And if you have these actors who are super high caliber and you're giving them nothing to do, and then it feels like a cameo with no punch because yeah. then you're like oh why wouldn't you have just cast a random Canadian yeah. actor instead of Ian Holm like I don't understand why he's in this role as opposed to somebody else well and it also they sort of start off with okay sh- she's on the run there's a hit on her and they're having to save her and save the game and there's sort of a mystery of okay well maybe the answer to what this is is inside the game so part of the time you're kind of left thinking oh is this a noir where we're trying to solve a mystery here or is this about her like at risk of losing her game because of you know because of the damage it's um it's endured in this process is this about saving the game or is this a capitalist commentary exactly and it doesn't quite make a decision it just sort of like hovers around all those pieces and then and then just sort of finds its way to its end. Yeah, and then the special effects never quite... Like, I'm almost wondering if this was reactionary to Crash. Mm-hmm. Because Crash, there's so many moments in that where, like, you do not want to look at the screen. Like, mm. it's genuinely grotesque mm-hmm. and uncomfortable and, like, blah. And, I mean, that's yeah. when he got the can walkouts and all that, right? Yeah. So I can't help but wonder if he actually pulled back... I could be Maybe. wrong, but he, if possibly he pulled back a little bit on this one because... And veered towards something that felt a bit more topical exactly. and then shied away from making a strong statement. Yeah. Maybe. Because, I mean, this does have the the body horror and all that but like the the weirdest thing i think you really see in terms of the body horror is when she sticks her finger in his his port and like licks it before she does which was an improvised bit (laughs) it's it's so gross i'm sorry that was just like you know what i think i think for me like for the film's shortcomings i think one of the reasons why i gravitated towards it might largely be to do with place and time Mm. so this film landed when i was like on the verge of coming out myself and i came out quite young at 13 and so for this film while it might be kind of um tame and and uh maybe a bit more topical compared to Cronenberg's other stuff um I think for me it landed because because of of what it showed about men and and being submissive or and and versus power and sexuality and i think at the time i was exploring all those things as well as the exciting nature of the encroaching millennium and all of this sort of uh reality bending stuff so there there's some things at play for me personally at the time when watching this and maybe that's why it stuck with me but i agree with you it does now as an adult i'm seeing mm, it falls a little short that's a whole that's a whole one thing i will give it 100 though is that it does not feel dated like in this in the same way that like blade runner doesn't feel dated or alien doesn't feel dated it's like no you built a world and you were smart enough to use digital effects sparingly and this was one of the first movies he'd ever used digital effects just to enhance things so like and where you don't really show technology but for the pods yeah because the pods are so so different from how we think of 
uh, technology because they're entirely made of biological materials. Uh, there's no frame of reference for comparison there, so it can exist on its own. I guess in the same way that some of the alien alien technology elements, like all the, the Giger uh, design stuff, because it's so foreign, you, you really can't sort of judge it in that way. It, it, there's no chance that it could look dated because it's so foreign. But it's also aged. Like yeah. like on in Alien, they're in a junker. And like yeah. you know this is like decades yeah. past when it should have been out in space. Oh, it's yeah. doing things. Same with Blade Runner, right? Like the yeah. world is dingy and gross and old and nobody's excited by technology. The same oh, yeah. thing's in this, right? Like everything's lived in. Everything. Oh, but 80s retro is so current now. It's That's so why it's just cool. a recurrence. <laughs> and then all the normcore stuff from Existence with the, the fashion. Yeah. That, that I think that's definitely come back too. It's funny to see the cyclical pattern. I also love all the, the fact that the only things that really change is like their hair. Their hair yeah. and like little tweaks of like yeah. outfits. Like his collar is popped yeah. in the third reality and you're like, oh man. And may, maybe that's why I watch it too. The transitions are quite clever, they right? Because we don't go through any sort of psychedelic wormhole trip as they, they travel between their, these, you know, subtle editing techniques where they just introduce set and prop elements and wardrobe elements of the world they're going into and they just sort of transition more organically that way in the cut so you do have to pay attention yeah i guess you do that's not for 13 year olds no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just let it explode oh man for most 13 year olds i'm yeah. sure for myself and yourself we were like capable of slightly more attention spanning yeah. i think i saw ken branna's uh, Hamlet three times in theater. Oh, wow. But I had a thing for Ken Brenna, so, you there know. There you go. There I'm you good go. now, but, yeah. <laughs> but at the time. <laughs> You're right over there. that now? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Let it go. Um, yeah, I've let, I've let well, that one good, go. It's a good Hamlet. I think it was a, yeah. perfectly serviceable. Yeah. has its issues, but perfectly serviceable. Yeah. Uh, all right, where are favorite moments? Favorite moments of the film. Um, Ted Peichel's first time. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> the first time. It's such a tender, tender no, it's not a very tender There's moment. an it's epidural involved. It's <laughs> more than a little rough. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely love background performers when they're allowed to just go loose. And the background performers in the opening scene are having the best time and their reactions are so big and so joyous. So like when the guy gets up to like assassinate him, that one guy's like, oh no, don't. <laughs> I'm moving my head, hands and face. and like really It's so funny him. that you mentioned that because I love playing that game. What are the background actors doing? And, and I noticed so that good. too in that scene. And, and hilariously enough, by contrast, in a later scene, I think it's in the Chinese restaurant when, when he's, he's shot and and yelled there's been like a lot of drama in that scene um he looks around at the crowd and they're just sort of staring casually at him and for me it's by contrast it's just hilarious because there's no sense of danger in their eyes or in their expressions they're just looking maybe a little bored <laughs> but he's just shot some people totally but nothing is not intentional in Cronenberg and you have to remember that yeah. right like if you're if you are seeing these totally overacting background performers yeah. there's a reason for that yeah. and they're just so they're having so much fun yeah. it's so wonderful yeah. um, definitely they're having fun I love that um, and I also just love how Jennifer Jason Lee is just like having the best time. Yeah. You know, like you can just tell she's like, ah, I'm never going to get to do anything like this again. This yeah. is so great. And I really love her performance. I think she's just having the best time and I it, that translates. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I don't I don't want to say the ending because I feel like that's that's too trite. Um the are we, But wait, are we still in the game? Oh, wait, no. <laughs> what is it that he says? But wait, Tell me for real, guys. Are we still, still in the, the game? game? Are we still in the game? Yeah. Um, 
Did you know that they actually changed the ending? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was the commentary, right? that was the scripted version. Yes. And then they shot an option where they actually shot him. And then they they screened it for a test audience. And people and were so upset. They did not want to lose the man. Yeah. Um, and, and I get why. It, and also, that doesn't feel like what the end is. The end is the question. Yeah. Right? Um, I, I'm imagining, and part of my job as a script supervisor, I don't, um, I haven't script supervised in a little while, but my brain still goes there, obviously. I can picture how those beats would have played out and how that would have played out in the end, in, in the edit, and it would have felt like a double beat. Yeah. You know, yeah, because it's a one-two. Yeah. There's the moment, and then there would have been this extra beat, and that would have felt, um, not only would, you know, audiences not want to have lost uh, the actor who played the Chinese waiter because we already got to see him die seeing him die again just feels cruel it would have felt like a double beat i'm wondering if uh, my favorite moments are the you know there there are several elements including the gristle gun that sort of make appearances and then then come back again but in another another like layer of reality so we we see certain bits um, sort of transcend and I love how that happens with the dog at the end so they set they set up these elements or these characters and we see them play out again and he didn't always know how that was gonna go and so I think I think for me my favorite moment is is when Pykele assembles the gristle gun and he's in the restaurant and he's eating the food that looks so unappealing and he says that explicitly because explicit dialogue because um, <laughs> it's a video game and uh, now people are going to think that I have a hate on for video games. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just, no, I understand. There's a, they, there's very specific information yeah. that needs to come out in a video game, and there's there's a specific style. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in the moment, he's just sort of being driven by his by his sort of avatar self, like the, the way the game's written. He's just being driven to do it. He doesn't know why. It's just sort of happening. And the, the gun comes together, and then we sort of, like, realize, you know, there's there's this tie-through. Um and for for me at the time, oh, that that felt like such a click of, of a puzzle. It's a puzzle piece coming together, and then seeing it used and how it works. Um, I imagine the design of the thing, you know, that like that is such a feat because they actually had to assemble all those pieces, and they're doing a lot of it in camera and make it look rational. Yeah, and the logic of that, I think, it's very and the having a gun that can pass through metal detectors and Cronenberg in the body horror guy that he is yeah i think that was really interesting i think maybe one of the things that i i like about the film too is in especially when the gristle gun starts to be assembled we start to realize this sort of tie through of of this anti-game theme and and who whatever presence is trying to take down uh allegra geller and and gameplay so this this sort of anti and whether you interpret that as like anti-religion or whether it's religious zealots taking this down, um, be, being anti-technology uh, or anti-progress, um, I'm not quite sure. But but I, I love how that sort of starts to introduce this notion that um, we, we don't trust our storytellers. And of course, the payoff there that... Um, that that it's all a line we've got these uh unreliable narrators going on so i like those kind of turns um i like what kind of questions that make us 
answer and i think because it just for me hints at conspiracy and that's exciting (laughs) Um, the 11 year old in me really loved that Um, that's very 90s though before real conspiracy started exactly yes yeah i know that sort of pales in comparison to all the the youtube uh spirals that that one can go on with conspiracy theories can't you just wait till like the children in our lives are like tell me again when conspiracies were fun and entertainment yeah, exactly. <laughs> not just now the they're world. all like interconnected yeah and you're like oh my god sorry guys i'm sorry about x-files yeah. i take full personal responsibility yeah. yeah between bigfoot the chupacabra and aliens it's all the same it's all the same yeah. they're all the same thing and gristle guns and alternate realities and alternate yeah oh my god because yeah. aliens aren't actually extraterrestrial you're right they're, they're interdimensional, interdimensional beings yeah we now know we now know, we now know. <laughs> disclosure now yeah. disclosure now oh my god okay i think we're good i gotta ask you alex how do people find you how do they find about and out point people towards all the things you want you can find devout and out on uh, cbc gem um, do you have international viewers who are listening to this beyond Canada? We do. Okay, so edit out me saying that. Got it. <laughs> so uh, you can find Devout and Out on CBC Gem. And for those of you beyond Canada, you can watch it on YouTube. And that is Devout and Out. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And if you're offended by it, that's cool too. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most Canadian thing. I just made a thing. I put yeah. it out into the universe and enjoy. Yeah. Hopefully, if not cool yeah exactly beautiful all right and as per usual you can find me on the twitters at liz shrimpton that's the masculine shrimpton over there uh big cool changes coming for the podcast guys i got a lot of plans coming up and i've got some really awesome interviews coming up uh we might be taking a little hiatus just to prep some stuff but i will keep you posted on that we also have a patreon coming so uh get your donations ready i know you all love the show and uh, if you want to support us you will be getting some information about that very soon i think that's just about everything so alex Do you want to go get a moose head? Yeah, I certainly do. Great. That'd be great. Let's do that. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.